I'm at College Town Bagels, a popular hangout spot for upperclassmen students right off of Cornell's campus. It's unseasonably warm, and students are gathering outside with their friends, wearing shorts, and soaking in a rare sunny day. Students sit and dish about the latest gossip with their friends or click away on laptop keyboards. It feels like a normal day here at Cornell. The thing is, today isn't a normal day. It's November 4th, meaning that yesterday was election day. For most Cornell undergrads, this is the first presidential election they voted in, and it's an election that has seen record turnout across the country. In the popular imagination, this election has been branded the most important election in decades, deciding the future of American democracy. Yet, Cornellians, along with the rest of the country, are playing the waiting game right now. Several key swing states are yet to be decided, and it could be days before a winner is announced. Hey, I'm Jack Kubinek. And I'm Seth Bollinger. And welcome to Clara Talks, the podcast where we seek to connect the truth of Christ with every person in every study at every campus. Today on the podcast, we'll catch up with current and former students as election day stretches into election days, engage the campus political climate in the aftermath of Joe Biden's victory. Across the nation, in red states and blue states and swing states, voters are delivering their verdict on a norm-shattering president and two starkly different visions of America's future. The president of the United States lied to the American people, and he is unfit for this job. If Biden wins, your country is gone. Gone. Last week, we talked about how changes in the climate and in the weather of higher education should be measured differently. And this election week is no exception. Right now, campus feels calm but foreboding, like the waning minutes before a storm hits. Students at Cornell are on edge, waiting and wondering what result this tumultuous election will finally bring. Post-election day at Cornell wasn't always like this, though. I got a chance to speak with John Nystrom, a current veterinary student at Cornell and former editor-in-chief of Claritas, who was a junior at Cornell when Donald Trump shocked the nation in 2016. Here's what he had to say. The 2016 election was huge and it was dramatic. I remember the night leading up to it, leading up to you know when we got the final results, there was definitely almost an unbelief. There was this huge disbelief that like, could this man this Donald Trump, could he beat Hillary Clinton, someone who's been in the political system for so long, someone who's actually, you know, like, it, it was just, it was kind of unbelievable. I don't think a lot of people felt like Donald Trump was going to win. It did bring a really strong response from students on campus the day after. There were a lot of sit-ins on campus. There were a lot of protests about, you know, this is not my president. And it was... It actually, it was, it was definitely a lot of mobilization of students. So the, re, the emotion, the emotional response, the emotional atmosphere, you know, the emotions leading up to the night, it was, it was so different compared to this election season. It's, it's kind of just been this quiet exhaustion that a lot of people, I think, have. I think there's some, been definitely a distancing from emotions. There's been some exhaustion and, um, yeah, a completely different, election election season in 2020 and 2016. 
I asked John if he thinks that Cornell students are more political now because of the 2016 election. I, I definitely think that students have become more political during uh, this election season. And, you know, if there's any metric that can kind of show that, I think it's the, the mail-in, the response that we've already seen, you know, like pre-election day of mail-in ballots, um, especially, I think, you know, a significant amount from college, college students mailing in to their, their home states who they think should be elected. Back at College Town Bagels, I get an alert on my phone that Joe Biden has won Wisconsin, a crucial swing state widening his path to victory. But looking around, no one seems to notice. At the table next to me, a girl tells a story about a strange guy she met in her apartment elevator last weekend between swells of laughter. It's starting to get dark, so I grab my things and walk home. As the sun sets on the second day of vote counting, still without a clear winner in the presidential race, I walk past students sitting out to watch the sunset on Libe's slope. I run into two of my friends, Sinithia and Euphoma, and we get to talking about, what else? The election. And I feel like I've come to the point where like, I don't, not necessarily trust <laughs> the government, but like, if I want change or want to see change, it's like, I like gather other people who want the same change and then like we address it from the local level instead of putting all of our faith in the government to do the change for us. In my experience, this type of disenfranchisement is common among college students. They are a group that wants to see change on a variety of issues, but they also stray from the mainstream liberal value of big government. They are a group that holds a broad distaste for Donald Trump, but a large sector holds additional disdain for Joe Biden seeing both men as insufficiently set on dismantling systemic injustice and American imperialism. It's really interesting to see people talk about Georgia who are not re even remotely from Georgia or even the South. Um, and so to like hear these conversations and just be like, oh, haha, that's like not actually how it is in Georgia, but okay. Sinithia and Euphoma are both from Georgia, and we get to talking about their home state, which has become an unexpected swing state in this election. It feels like... A lot of people are talking about Georgia, and from a perspective that seems a bit, I don't want to say outdated, but seems like they don't know a lot about Georgia, they just think it's like this racist state. And although we do have our racists, um, I think there's a lot more. A burst pipe in Atlanta's main polling center has slowed down the vote count in the Democratic stronghold, which has caught the attention of some Cornell students. Sunithia recounts overhearing students laying out conspiracies that Trump supporters had somehow caused this burst pipe to suppress pro-Biden turnout in Georgia. Some of the things that have been happening in Georgia with the ballots, um, specifically like the leaky pipes that have ruined the ballots, I think that's, it sounds suspicious, but given the county that it occurred in, it's quite, like, it's expected. I'm not surprised what happened with the ballots in that county. It was not a shocker, I think, to many Georgians. There's a sense of frustration here. If these elite prep school kids had ever been to Georgia, they wouldn't be surprised by this kind of thing. And this seems to be Sinithia and Euphoma's main gripe during this election, the reduction of complex experiences into red and blue. I mean, I think from that as well, it reminds me to take like everything I hear with like a grain of salt because I could hear something about a state and a state can vote a certain way. But I don't think that any of that um, is able to like encompass the actual dynamics of that state. Hearing Sinithia talk reminds me that 
all the people screaming at their TVs as votes are counted in Maricopa County, Arizona, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, are not watching some live sports event like cable news makes the election out to be. They are seeing the aggregate of millions of individual experiences over the past four years, somehow bundled up into two neat categories of Democrat and Republican. And while the media will spend the next four years adjudicating what went right for whichever candidate, they can never truly comprehend the shared experiences and understandings that exist in a community. It's the morning of November 5th. The election results are starting to shift as absentee ballots trickle in. Joe Biden leads in electoral college votes and needs only one of the major swing states, Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, or North Carolina to claim the presidency. But uncertainty still hangs in the air. President Trump earlier declared victory while votes are still being counted. Right now, it seems like America is nearly split 50-50 over who should be the next president, representing the fact that our country may be more divided than it ever has. Tensions are high, but hope still seems to be seeping through. Jack and I are spending much of our week on the couch watching CNN while we work on school assignments. I, I don't think humans were meant to watch this much cable news. It's safe to say that our productivity has not been especially great this week. A little editors aside here, this coming bit is unscripted. I sneakily recorded Jack reacting to election results in real time. Thankfully, he was a good sport about it. We would hear. Again, there's a process. Jack, what's your final call? Is hey, Biden going to take Georgia? Fill out the paperwork, yeah. file it in court, sure. file it with the election board. If he oh, does, I might cry. That's, that's, not, that's not a complaint. That's he doesn't need it, but I just, I've grown really attached, really attached to Georgia today. Might move there. But it's like, dude, I can't I can't express just the, the catharsis when I was watching live as Michigan flipped. Like, John King was just talking about some garbage, and then they're like, John. I'm going to cut you off there. This is big news. Uh, <laughs> Biden just took the lead in Michigan. And then like, I was just like, it was great. It's like while watching a sporting event. I want that, but for Georgia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I'm not Even though it's looking more certain that Biden is going to win, allegations of voter fraud and the very tight race definitely have us and many others feeling stressed. We just need to be patient and see how it all plays out, I guess. It's Saturday, November 7th, and the Associated Press has just announced that the presidential race is over. Joe Biden is the president-elect. Within minutes of the announcement, the unnatural calm of the past few days evaporates, and students descend upon College Town, some on foot but most in cars, hanging out of windows and sunroofs and honking their horns, creating a cacophonous symphony celebrating Biden's victory or perhaps more accurately, celebrating President Trump's loss. And while the celebration extending well past dark is political in nature, there's an additional dimension to the celebration. In a year characterized by hardship after hardship, students seem thrilled to finally have something, anything, to celebrate. But in any two-party system, one party must lose. 
I reached out to my friend Avery, who serves on the executive board of Cornell Republicans, to hear more about how campus Republicans are feeling about the election. The day of, it was definitely something that I was like, oh, I just, I really want this to be over with. Unfortunately, did not do a lot of classwork that week. <laughs> I just pretty much just had like 538 uh, and the New York Times just pretty much like rolling up and just waiting for, for a yeah. lot of those, you know, ballot dumps. Well, at least there's something Republicans and Democrats can agree on. Avery and I get to talking more specifically about what life is like as a Republican at a school where recent public filings show 98% of all political donations from faculty going to Democratic candidates. Avery gives me his perspective about what it's like to be a conservative at Cornell. I think I've been uh, generally, you know, well-treated, uh, all of my professors and TAs, for the most part, even though, you know, they've been rather over with a lot of their political opinions, have been fairly open, definitely as like a conservative uh, you're receiving a lot more pushback than anybody else, I would say. There'll be something that, you know, I disagree with and that somebody else says, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, speak up. But a lot of times sort of, you know, the culture, at least in the classroom, uh, is definitely that, you know, if I say something that people disagree with, uh, there's far more, you know, a willingness to sort of, you know, challenge what somebody else says. Avery tells me how he published an op-ed criticizing the Cornell Student Assembly for breaking assembly rules and donating $10,000 to Cornell Students for Black Lives, an organization created amid the Black Lives Matter protests of this summer that donated money to a variety of other organizations, some of which donated money to Democratic political candidates. And, you know, I knew this as, you know, being a member of, like, Cornell Republicans, we can't use any of our money to like donate to, you know, like being involved with like political campaigns, like any money that we receive from the student body that's sort of, you know, for club purposes. Uh, but, you know, money that we would be, you know, using for any sort of political purposes has to be sort of, you know, fundraised ourselves. We've got private donors on that. The piece was not well received by the Cornell student body. And so because of sort of, you know, the nature of, you know, it was a donation uh, to Black Lives Matter, there was a lot of pushback on that, especially from members that had been involved in that donation. Uh, so they pushed back. Uh, sort of, you know, saying that my criticisms uh, were anti-Black, uh, and, you know, a couple of people that had, you know, come to defend me were, you know, attacked in like a similar vein. Avery thinks that these people missed the point. It's totally fine for, you know, students to be donating their own money. I think that's totally fine. It's their expression. It's all their purview. But the big thing was just sort of the procedural issue. Besides that, I think, you know, the message was really lost. And I think that's definitely sort of, you know, due to this increase in a lot of hyperpolarization, you know, whether it's opposition against conservatives or just, you know, people being very uh, you know, loud and overt uh, about their political opinions on the left. Wait, did he just use hyperpolarization to describe student government? Do you think that's a fair characterization that um, along with the polarization of like national politics, there's also polarization in these like campus government bodies now? Exactly. Yeah. No, I think that's a fairly, you know, accurate assessment, right? Like, but it does seem that, you know, over the past couple of years uh, that the culture, uh, especially like in our student assembly, and a couple of, you know, other student orgs is a lot more sort of, you know, advocacy oriented versus, I guess, sort of, you know, the, the core principles of just sort of, you know, governing that, you know, we haven't seen anything uh, like sort of, you know, this advocacy to like get free printing since like, what, like three years ago, uh, when like the current student trustee, like Jaywan, like had like gone through and we, we just got that, but we haven't seen any sort of, you know, huge, like, I guess, like public works or improvement of student life initiative. It's been resolutions that, you know, are, you know, condemning the university uh, for, you know, various actions, uh, whether it's, you know, like the removal and the dismissal of, you know, a graduate student like, you know, Julio Feliz or, you know, disarming the, the CUPD, which is something that's going to be discussed uh, at this Thursday's essay meeting. It's more of advocacy and, you know, just more statements that are put out there versus anything that the university can actually do to really, 
help us uh, as students. In Avery's view, the symbolic posturing that cripples the federal government also impacts student government. I know of a couple people that are, you know, going to be on both sides going down to, you know, Georgia to sort of, you know, uh, you know, campaign uh, for the Senate election. So I think, you know, there's definitely a benefit now that we aren't as constrained about being sort of, you know, on the uni university's premises. I wonder how Sinithia and Ufoma would feel about that. I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm just going to, you know, sit on my butt, you know, be home uh, and really just sort of, you know, watch while, you know, the world sort of you know, changes and, you know, goes by and passes me by. But I think, you know, sort of not having to be at the university uh, can definitely be helpful where, you know, you can, you know, afford to, you know, sort of take time off. Avery emphasizes being active in working for political change and not being passive participants in our democracy. It kind of reminds me of this old youth group trope about the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer. A thermometer just measures the temperature in a room, passively reflecting the environment around it. But a thermostat sets the temperature in a room, actively creating change in the climate of its surroundings. My youth pastor always said that we should be thermostats instead of thermometers. We've spent the last week investigating the political climate at Cornell and have learned a lot. To go along with the youth group analogy, a thermostat doesn't know how high to set the temperature unless a thermometer can measure what the temperature of the room is. We've done that. But what comes next? Don't we have a higher calling as Christians to engage with our culture and participate in the public sphere in order to fight for the oppressed and disenfranchised, preserve moral order, and promote human flourishing? That is the role of the thermostat. As it says in Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The climate of America right now is divided and full of hatred. There is no denying that we have a long way to go before we reach unity and justice for all. Trying to bring about a positive climate change may be a long-term challenge, but we can start with shifting the weather in our universities, communities, and cities. How can we do this? It's laid out right there in the Bible. Loving kindness, walking humbly, and being a voice for the marginalized. Whether they're attractive traits or not, these must be how we as Christians engage in the political sphere. Because the truth is, four years from now, we will have to do this all over again. And over the next four years, we have a choice between seeking out division or loving and listening to our neighbors. I guess another youth group trope that we can use is, what would Jesus do? Claritox is a production of Cornell Claritas, a journal of Christian thought at Cornell University. You can read our latest issue and explore our other musings and writings at www.cornellclaritas.com. Join us next week as we explore the spiritual climate of our college campuses. Thanks for listening. <laughs>